Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Last week I talked about uh, the Marshall Plan, the, uh, the plan to rebuild Western Europe after World War II. Um, did a little more research on it. Uh, while Marshall was a general, he also became Secretary of State after World War II and was when this, uh, when this was put into place. The Marshall Plan we spent uh, as uh, the U.S. nearly $13 billion to rebuild uh, the, the Western European countries after World War II. And remember we talked about last, year, uh, last week that there was a purpose for peace. After, after peace was, was made uh, with the Axis powers, with Germany and uh, Italy, we, there was a purposeful peace to, to encourage the economy to grow, encourage, uh, uh, discourage communism from creeping into uh, Western Europe, they, they had a particular purpose. We talked about how, uh, the, talked about our purpose for peace uh, in, in Jesus is to, uh, to share that peace, number one, but then also to be able to weather any storms that come. Well, what about after the Marshall Plan? The, the, did it work? That, that was the question. That was a lot of money to spend. They, initially, they wanted to spend, uh, I think it was $20 billion, but as it moved through Congress, uh, it got whittled down to, to 13. There are debates uh, about how much the Marshall Plan had to do with the economic recovery. Was it, it wasn't just the Marshall Plan, but... From uh, 1948 to 1952, Europe uh, experienced its fastest period of economic growth in history. Uh, again, it wasn't just the Marshall Plan that did that, but it, it led to that. Industrial production in this time increased 35%. Uh, agricultural production surpassed pre-war levels. Poverty and starvation that was uh, extremely common in the post -war, immediate post-war years, 45, 46, 47, all but disappeared, uh, and pretty much overnight. As soon as the Marshall Plan started, the poverty and the uh, uh, starvation it disappeared. And eventually, you can, you can trace the Marshall Plan and, and uh, other iterations of it down through the years until you actually get to the European Union. The Marshall Plan and what it did led directly to what we have as the European Union now. Whether you think that is a good idea or not is, is really immaterial. There, were just, there are direct results of the Marshall Plan in the lives of Western European countries. So you see that peace has positive results. Peace ha always has a, a positive result. And this morning, we are finishing up our, our five-week series on peace, peace on earth, uh, with the result of peace. And we're looking at Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, to get that result of peace. That passage says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes, uh, surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
We actually don't see the result of peace, and this is why the, the passage this morning is 4-7. We don't see the result of peace until the second half of verse 7. Problem is, we really can't jump to that verse until we see what the other verses have to say to us and get us there. If we go back to chapter 4, because that's really where the break is in this passage, we, it really goes back to verse 1. It's a Philippians, uh, or Paul, when he's writing Philippians, there's a clean break between chapter 3 and chapter uh, 4. He didn't have chapter numbers, remember, it was just a letter that he wrote. But there's a clean break there, and he's starting something new. It's, it's his closing part of the letter, and he's given rapid-fire instructions, and he's going to give some encouragement, and he's going to talk about some people, and... In verses 1 through 3, particularly in verse uh, 3, he tells them, uh, rather verse 2, he he's talks to two particular people, a couple of women in the church who were arguing. Don't know what they were arguing about, but it apparently had the potential of actually splitting the church if it didn't, if it didn't calm down. So, he, he, that's his, his context, and he gets to uh, chapter 4, verse 4, and he says, Rejoice, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known. The Lord is near and don't worry. There are three actions we see here that are needed in order to get us to peace. Now these are imperatives. These are not suggestions. Paul is commanding the Philippians and uh, by extension of the church, us, to do these three things. And there are three things that have to occur in our lives in order for peace to, to reign supreme, for peace to show up. First imperative he has is in verse 4. He says, rejoice, have joy. Rejoice in the Lord when things are okay. Rejoice in the Lord when it's going all right. Rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. Rejoice in the Lord as long as nothing else is going on, right? That's what he says, clearly, right? No, my bad. Rejoice in the Lord always, always. There is never a circumstance in which we cannot find joy in the Lord. That does not mean that our circumstances will all be wonderful. Uh, you know, I don't believe anyone finds persecution of any kind, but particularly uh, the, the beheading of, of Christians in, in uh, the Middle East right now, no one going through that finds that particular, particularly joyful. Yet they can rejoice in the Lord in their persecution, knowing what their eternity holds. Knowing that... On the other side of that pain, they have heaven. We rejoice in this context. It's clear that Paul is telling us that we are to have joy in our affliction. We're not going through those things right now. But we experience plenty enough pain right now for some of us to think, well, it just can't get any worse. Well, yeah, it can, but... I understand where you're coming from. I'm not here to, to demean your pain. But what I am here to say is that there is no affliction in your life that can take away your joy unless you let it. Paul clearly says, rejoice in your afflictions. Rejoice in the Lord always. And you know what? I think as Christians, we sometimes think, I think we actually find that easier right, to rejoice in our afflictions than to rejoice in our successes. And you say, oh no, yeah, I think we do, because in our affliction, we turn to God a lot. Oh, something bad is happening, i got to pray. 
I can't do anything else. I, need to, I, must, I, I might as well pray. As if that wasn't the first thing you should have done to begin with. But, you know, okay, and then and, and the affliction, and I pray, and, and, and because of my prayer, because of that conversation with God, I find joy that I didn't really expect. But it's in those successes that we tend to tell God, thanks, I got it now. I don't really need you at the moment. Everything's going okay. And we tend to not, we, 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 we don't call it joy. We, we, we get comfortable. We're, we're happy. But we forget that any blessing we have, any gift comes from the Lord. So we need to just as much, find just as much joy in the Lord in our successes as we do in our afflictions. We also need to find joy in the Lord in the monotony. Most days are not days of oppressive affliction or mountaintop success. Most days are just days. It's just the grind of work. It's just traffic. It's just diapers. It's just tantrums. It's just fights. It's just homework. It's just cooking three more meals. It's just getting the yard cut. It's just the honeydew list. It's just, it's just, it's just. That's what most days are. And in those days, we must find our joy in the Lord. And we can, uh, I, I can give you all the cliches. Well, you better be thankful you have a yard to cut. There are people in the world who don't have a yard. You know, I can do that to you. I'm, I'm not. You're all adults, most of you. So you, you get that. But we need to find joy in the monotony of life. There is joy in the everyday, just what we did yesterday. And, and you know, the, the pessimists will tell you that if you're not in the midst of, a, you're, you're, either in one of, you're in one of three places in life. You're either in a time of trouble, you're coming out of a time of trouble, or you're going into a time of trouble. I mean, that, that's, that's the pessimistic view. I I'm, tend to be a little more optimistic. And, I'm, you know, you're either in a good time, you're coming out of a good time, or you're going into a good time. That's, that's how I prefer to look at it some days, depending on if I'm in a good time or not, right? Uh, yeah, that's the way that works. But we are still commanded. Again, this is not a suggestion. This is not a if it, if it behooves you. If, if it feels good, find joy in your circumstances. Because circumstances are irrelevant for joy. Now, happiness is a different story. But we're not talking about happiness. We're not talking about the giggles. We're not talking about, uh, you know, finding everything funny. We're talking about an internal welling up of joy, of, of knowledge of I have something greater than everything around me. Christmas is a great time to understand joy. And, and I'm not going to go biblical. I'm going to go materialistic. I, as a parent, now... Our, our gift this year is a trip to Colorado, so there wasn't a lot under the tree. But I, as a parent, love Christmases when I know there are some pretty, pretty good gifts underneath that tree. And I have this internal excitement, this realization that there is something great going to happen. So it may, even in, you know, bad day, whatever, I know... But that's Christmas morning, that's, that's under there. That's kind of what I'm talking about. That, that internal realization that there is something great for me. Joy. I have joy in my salvation, in my Jesus. And Paul's getting excited here. He, he, it's, uh, 
rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. Um, the, the, the phrase, a, a phrase that John used when he wrote 1 John, an exclamatory, an exclamatory phrase. What was it? Of what country? Is that what we, you know, that was their exclamatory, of what country? You know, it, it, he doesn't do that here, but it's, what the heck? Rejoice! Again, I'll tell you, rejoice! Do you get it? In every situation, the beginning of Philippians, Paul is telling them, I know you are about to go through persecution. I know you already feel it coming. Rejoice. I know you have a potential church split about to happen. I know that there are factions in the church warring against each other. Again, I say rejoice. Second imperative, he says, is be gentle. Be gentle. Verse 6, or verse 5 rather, let your graciousness or your gentleness be known to everyone. This, this is magnanimity. I, I like that word. It's fun to say. Magnanimity. It's like Francisco. Uh, that was an elf reference for all of you who didn't. Hannah got it. Uh, thanks. Um, uh, magnanimity. Selflessness. This is generous treatment of others. This is me saying that my rights are secondary to your rights. Whatever. And, and, and again, hear the context we're talking about affliction. We're talking about a, a potential church split. And Paul is telling people, put your rights second. But they want to hurt me. Put your rights second. But they're ripping our church apart. Put your rights second. Be gentle. Be magnanimous. It, it should echo to you what we've already learned in Matthew from the Beatitudes, particularly 5, 7, and 5, 9, where it says the merciful are blessed, or the ones who forfeit is what we said, forfeit their rights. The peacemakers are blessed. The ones who say, I don't have to win. Paul is saying, you don't have to win. You forfeit your rights. You give up your right to win. And you do this as a clear example to those watching. Because when those people see those who want to persecute you, those who are dividing the church for petty reasons, when they see you say, you know what? I'm going to let you win. It could be their heart will change. But even if it doesn't, that does not matter. You are still an example. If you are not an example to those who persecute you, you are an example to those who come behind you but will also be persecuted. You're an example to your children when you respond with gentleness to others that want to hurt you. And then he says, he throws in this little phrase. It almost doesn't fit. He says, the Lord is near. What does he mean? Well, probably one of two things, and they actually kind of overlap. Be gentle, be gracious, because the Lord's near. The, Lord, the Lord's watching you. The Lord knows what you're doing. But it actually keeps going. It's more the Lord is near hanging on to the, the next verse. Verse 6 where he tells us not to worry because, look, the Lord's near. It's not going to be much longer. The Lord has not left you. The Lord has not, uh, is not going to forget you. The Lord is coming back. The Lord is near. So you don't have to worry that, oh, I'm going through this hard time. Jesus is coming. But the, but the church is having a... Jesus is coming, is what he's saying. 
You don't have to concern yourself with it. You can live a life of joy. You can live a life of gentleness because, well, Jesus is near. That is your fuel. That's your your push. And then the final imperative is verse 6 when he says, don't worry. Don't worry about anything. About nothing? Uh, but, but I've got, I've got this and the, and okay, I can, I'll throw those aside. I don't, but this one and, and, but there's this really big one I need to, and he says, don't worry about anything. Is this carelessness? It's not. It is not carelessness. It is not, well, I don't have to go to work because I don't have to worry about what I'm going to eat. You know, I don't have to worry about the roof over my head. No, 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 no. He's not carelessness. It's care. I don't have to worry about what happens. I will do what I'm supposed to do. See, it's not carelessness. I will do my part. I will do what I am called to do. I will lead my family. I will provide for my family. I will serve my God. I will be a part of of, of a community of faith. I will do what I need to do as a Christian. But I will leave the results up to God. I will leave tomorrow up to God. Don't worry. Prayer is the cure for worrying. We see kind of... He uses three or four different words here for prayer. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests. So you can go with either the three or four, with requests being the fourth one. I'm going to leave off, um, I'm going to say that requests is uh, not exactly one of them. So we see three things that he does here in prayer. We see first a conversation, I believe. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer. Through just talking to God, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not much of a talker. And y'all are going, yeah, really? No, uh, what I mean is, I'm not one to talk about me. And, and if you ever come to me and say, Michael, I want to talk about something, I, I am, I'm a good listener, but I'm not going to usually give you 15 to 20 ways that you can fix it. I mean, I might, if, if that's what you ask for, how do I uh, respond? How do I go about this? Well, I'll, I'll work through you, but I'm going to assume most of the time you're just wanting to get something off your chest. Well, that's basically what this prayer is. That's really a lot of times all we need to do with God. I, 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 this, this is, maybe it's just because it's my personality in general, but this tends to be my prayer with God. I, I want responses, I want answers, I want, but usually all I'm asking for is, God, just, just listen to me for a little bit. I got issues, and I need to talk about them. And the thing is, most of the time, I know what the answers are already because, you know, I've got his, I've got his guidebook. So it's really just me talking through things. It's this prayer, this conversation, getting verbally to the, po- to the place that I knew God was going to take me anyway. Okay? That's the conversation. Second, you see petition. And he, he uses petition, and then later on he says request. These are requests through prayer, through conversation with God about your issues, through request. God, I need help here. God, can you do this in my life? God, can you do that in my life? You go to him, and he wants to hear those things. He's going to say no sometimes. No, I will not do that in your life. 
Now, we like to say that that's an unanswered prayer. No, it's not. It was a no. And what we'll do is we'll go back and pray it again. Kids do it, right? Y'all sometimes, some, yeah, sometimes, can we do, no. But can we, no. What if we, no. Now, I could have sat there and just ignored them. That would have been an unanswered request. But even then, usually they know if I didn't answer, it means no. I mean, so even if we don't hear anything from God, it's, maybe it's just no right now. But when we take our petitions to Him, when we take our requests to Him, we say, God, I need, I think, in my life, these things. And God will take that list and say, you don't need that, you don't need that, you need this, but not right now. You don't need that, and I'll go ahead and give you this one. Because I, do, I agree you need that one. Because He knows he knows what we need. It is no surprise to God when we go to Him and say, God, I need healing for this illness. You're sick? Well, nobody called me. Now, that happens to me all the time. Uh, you know, I hear three days later, well, you know so-and-so had surgery. Well, no, I don't know that because nobody told me. You didn't hear? No, I didn't hear because nobody called me and told me. God's not that way. God's not up there wondering, well, I haven't seen old so-and-so in church lately. I wonder if they're okay. He knows your need, but He wants to hear your request. And then the third part of, of this prayer, uh, of, of praying, not worrying about every, anything, but in everything, we pray, we petition, and we give thanks. We come to Him with thankfulness at the beginning. We want to do that at the end, right? We want to say, well, when you give me what I think I need, I'll be more than happy to thank you. I'll give you all the thanks I think you deserve. But see... We need to be thankful at the beginning. And there will be some people that will tell you, you be thankful at the beginning because you are claiming what he's going to do. No, no, this is not necessarily for what he will do, but for what he has already done. Where'd it go? There it is. Uh, this is not for what he will do, but what he has already done. See, there is plenty in my life to be thankful for if he never does another thing for me. If he never provides another escape, another dollar, another bite to eat, he has saved my soul. I have plenty to be thankful for. So when I go to God tomorrow for something, I need to go to him with thankfulness for everything he has already done. And go to him knowing you may say no, you may say yes, you may say wait. God, I thank you for what you have done for me so far. And I wait for your answer for tomorrow. And when you tell me, yes, thank you, Lord, that you gave me what I thought I needed. And when you say no, thank you, Lord, that you have a better plan for my life than I have. And when you say wait, thank you, Lord, that I have the opportunity to spend time with you and grow in you and see what you're going to do in my life. That is prayer with thankfulness. And that puts me in a position where I don't have to worry about the future or the present. But, you know, some of us still worry about the past. I don't have to worry about that either. Because I am in Christ, united with Him. And then we see verse 7 
So we have our three imperatives. Rejoice, be gentle, don't worry. And then in verse 7, we see that peace is provided. And the peace of God, verse 7 says, which surpasses every thought will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We see... uh, Four things, I believe, about peace here. And, and we're, even, we're not even going to get to the result of peace until the third, the third line here. But the fir- at first, peace is of God. It is supernatural in origin. It is not manufactured. You cannot make your own peace. Him out of your life, her out of your life, more money, less money, less worry, better job, better kids, fewer kids, more kids, whatever, that will not manufacture peace in your life. It might, it might contribute somewhat, however minuscule, to a peaceful existence. But it will not create peace in your life. Peace is of God. And notice here, Paul mentions no change of circumstances. It's not, and the peace of God will come on you because he takes away 15 of your problems. Gives you a bigger bank account. No, the peace of God just comes. It surpasses every thought. What does that mean? It's beyond understanding. It is, it is beyond my ability to explain. It, it's, it's beyond my ability to plan for. In, in my prayer, in my petition, in my requests, I go to God and say, God, if these things would just happen, I would have peace in my life. And he says, no, none of those things will give you peace. Why don't you spend more time with me? Why don't you get to know me better? Why don't you listen to me some, and then you'll have peace. And I go, but that doesn't make sense, God. Peace will come when this is gone. And he says, no, I will give you peace that passes your understanding. You don't understand the kind of peace I can give. You think peace is about a peaceful existence. You think peace is when there's nothing bad going on in your life. I'm telling you, peace is when you rejoice in your every circumstance, when you are gentle and selfless and put other people first, and when you pray to me and don't worry about your problems, then, he says, you will have peace from me beyond understanding, beyond explanation. Because tell me, tell you, if you can explain where your peace came from, then it can be explained away. If you can tell me I got peace in my life because of this, then I can tell you how the removal of that will take your peace from you. I can tell you how that's not really peace. I can explain that away. I can say, well, you're putting some sort of trust in this, or you have uh, allowed this to, to control your life, or really you're just blocking out the things. You, you're just you're focusing on this, and you're not paying any attention to these other things. There is no real peace. You've, you're just ignoring the problems, which isn't peace. It's ignorance, Right? God says, I will give you an unexplainable peace in your situation. Because tell me how the parent can find peace when their child lays in a hospital bed dying. Tell me how uh, a a parent can, uh, a family can find peace when last night their home is destroyed by a tornado in the Metroplex. Tell me how we can find peace when in 
parts of the world right now, at this moment, there could be someone walking down the street, knocking on the doors, dragging you out of your home if you're a Christian to cut your head off. Tell me how there's peace. You can't. You can't explain it. Because that is a peace that is of God that is beyond understanding. And he goes on to say it is beyond understanding. And finally, we get to the result. Finally, peace guards. And this is the beauty. All these imperatives that we go through in order to find peace, all this this source of peace that we have, the result is that it guards. It will guard your hearts and minds. That word means to stand watch, to protect Philippi was, had a Roman garrison in it. It was one of the garrison cities where it was a, it was, it was a fort, Fort Sam Houston, whatever. It was, it was fort, fort Philippi. It, they understood what it meant to have people standing on the walls, guarding the city. They knew the safety that came from that. They knew the comfort that came from that. They knew the peace that came from that. And God is saying, my peace will be like that garrison standing on the wall of your life that keeps out everything I don't want in your life. Only lets in those things that I do want in your life. So if you're experiencing a trial, if you're experiencing an affliction, if you're experiencing a major success in life right now, you can know this is what God wants me to experience because I rejoice in my afflictions or in everything. I'm gentle. I put others first. I do not worry, but I pray instead. Therefore, I have this peace of God that I cannot understand, that I know is guarding my life. So if it's here, it's because God wants me to have it. That should be beautiful to you. That should change your eyes. It should change the way you see your life. If I know that everything I'm going through is what God wants me to go through, I don't have to worry about a thing. God has me here for a purpose. Is it for me? Maybe. Is it for other people? Possibly. But it doesn't matter. I am here because God wants me here, wherever here may be. And I can know that because I have peace. This, it guards against things that God doesn't want. It defends against sin. God's peace defends against sin. Because sometimes in the midst of our tribulation, in the midst of our troubles, we will sin purely for the heck of it. I'm in a bad position. I'm in a bad place right now. I'm kind of mad at everybody, so I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do what I want to. Or maybe that's just me. But I don't think so. I think that describes most of us. We we call it acting out when they're two, right? We quit calling acting out when we get older, but that's all we're doing. The peace of God, the peace that allows me to overcome, to to weather any storm, guards me against sin. It guards me against acting out. It guards me against worry. It guards me against giving up and saying, I cannot do this. Because yes, I can. Because I have a garrison of peace that guards me my entire life. But let me tell you, without a doubt, he tacks on 
this, these three little words, in Christ Jesus. He, he makes that qualifier. Oh, it's down there. Makes that little qualifier in our lives. This is a problem for those who have not trusted Christ. If you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, you don't have peace. You may have some sort of peaceful existence at times, but you do not have peace, and you will never have peace. You can't rejoice always. You will not be selfless. You will worry Prayer won't work, and you will not have a garrison of peace that guards your heart unless you are in Christ Jesus. And that is a relationship with Him. It's not an acknowledgement of His existence. It's not that I believe He was, He's a good man, He's a good teacher, or even that I go to church some, but a personal relationship with Him. We understand that peace is only... See, notice it, it, he didn't say only... It will guard your hearts and minds about Christ Jesus. Or if you know Christ Jesus. In, there is an intimacy. I'm a part of Jesus. Jesus is a part of me. We use the phrase, though it's not in the Bible explicitly, we ask Jesus into our hearts. We use that phrase because it is descriptive of taking Him in and internalizing Him. The Bible clearly says the Holy Spirit is a seal upon our hearts. We are in Jesus as well. He is in us. We are in Him in whom we find our being. We live and breathe. I mean, the Bible's just ed up with that kind of language where we exist in Jesus. And it is only in Jesus that there can ever be peace on earth. We will never find peace. There will never be a cessation of war. There will never be love for each other outside of Jesus. That's why the, the, the gospel mandate is so important. That's why as Southern Baptists, we support the International Mission Board and we have our Lottie Moon offering every Christmas because ultimately that will bring peace long before all of our tanks and guns and planes will. Oh, those things will bring a peaceful existence occasionally. And I'm not preaching against war. What I'm saying is there will always be war until hearts change through Jesus Christ. And that is our responsibility, not the government's, not the military's, but ours, mine, and yours, to see peace come on earth. And the result will be, well, ultimately, the result of peace on earth will be when Jesus comes back, one final battle, and there will truly be peace on earth after that. Because at that point, the division will be made. Those to hell who have forsaken him. Those to heaven who have trusted him. And we will get to see, finally, peace on earth. But we can have peace now. You can have peace now. Jesus is your peace. Give your heart to Jesus and you will experience true peace. Trust Him as your Savior. Confess your sins to Him. Sin kills us. Jesus saves us. Confess your sins to Him. Believe that that gift 
that we celebrate, celebrated three days ago, two days ago, is your salvation. Give your heart to Him, and you can be saved, and you can have peace beyond just momentary peace, times of a peaceful existence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that in the midst of a peaceless age, you have provided peace. Lord, in the midst of storms and wars and battles and frustrations and, and depression and, and hatefulness and greed and suffering and poverty and starvation, we have peace through Jesus. Peace in Jesus. But Lord, help us to realize that it begins in our heart individually with a relationship with you. And if there's someone here who's never trusted you as Savior, I pray that today they will make that decision for you to trust you, to give you their heart. Lord, and experience that peace today. We pray for a mighty movement of your spirit this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you respond? Peace for life. It can be yours. It's not a fairy tale. But it begins with you accepting Christ, following in obedience with Him. The imperatives to rejoice and put others before yourself and to, to not worry but instead pray. What do you, do you need to do this morning to find peace in your life? What do you need to do this morning to find peace in your life? It will always involve your relationship with Jesus. It may, it may affect and it will affect very likely some relationships with other people or relationships with money or something, but it will begin with your relationship with Jesus. This morning, the altar is open. If you need to come and you need to pray, I will pray with you if you would like. This morning, find peace as we do business with God this morning. Let's stand and sing.